Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. We launched uh, in the 1st of June, we launched a, into a summer series on grace. Uh, and one of the things we heard from the scripture was a clear challenge, I think. It was a clear challenge for me and I, I passed it on to you from Hebrews chapter 12 verse 15. And it says this, it says, see to it that none of you misses the grace of God. See to it that none of you misses the grace of God. And that, that has become a prayer of mine for, for you and everyone who calls River Bluff their, their home. Anyone who's touched by the ministries of River Bluff, my prayer has been, and I've asked, I've invited you at least for the month of June, hopefully longer, that we will pray together that nobody misses the grace of God. Because if you missed the grace of God, you missed, missed it all. Two weeks ago, we, we looked at the scripture and we saw how it can be easy in our culture to replace the grace of God with cheap imitations. One of those is, is religion. It's a cheap substitute. And we, you know, we talked about this and many of you know if you've hung out here very long and all, we're not a fan of religion. We don't like do the religion thing at all. We don't like the rules and the regulations and because they always try to replace grace. That's what religion does. And we start believing the lies that somehow I can be good enough to earn God's favor. Sometimes I can do just the right things to manipulate God to, you know, to, to make me his own. It doesn't work. It's, it's just lies. And so in this series, we've been also focusing on another verse, and it's the end of Romans chapter 5, verse 21. And Paul concludes that great chapter by saying, basically saying this, grace reigns. Grace will rule. Grace will have its way. And you can fill in the blank with anything. Whatever you struggle with, you can put in that blank. God's grace can reign over that. In week one, we looked at how God's grace is able to reign over our sin and our sins. And not only, not only have dominion over our sins, but, you know, our failures that plague us and haunt us still. The, 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 the outflow of that, the shame and the guilt. God's grace has dominion and can have dominion and rule over all of that. One of the things we challenged each other into was saying, we're not going to be those kinds of Christians who, yes, get eternal life and realize it, but then we continue to live out our days in shame and guilt. We're saying we're not going to do that because God's grace is bigger than that. Yes, it covers our eternity, but it covers our here and now. We don't have to live in shame. Last week, we looked at the flip side of the coin of grace, that it's not just about receiving God's grace, but it's also about giving it, about dispensing it. And we said, it's not God's grace if it doesn't flow both ways. Grace is only grace when it flows both ways. And we, we talked about how much fun, how beautiful, how incredible it is to receive the grace of God, but how messy and painful it can be to extend the grace of God through forgiveness. But we learn from God's word that we will never be asked to dispense more grace than we have been received. We, we, we also talked about that the extent to which we were willing to forgive the person that's wounded us the most, to the extent we're willing to forgive that person, is the extent that we'll experience the fullness of God's grace flowing through our own lives. Because God's grace flows both ways. And then God in his wonderful grace has forgiven us 
and invited us to be a part of the great movement of forgiveness on this planet. Now this week we're going to be focusing on something a little different. We're going to focus on how God's grace can reign, how it can have dominion, how it's more than enough for our weaknesses. That God's grace can overcome. It's enough to overcome our weaknesses. It's more powerful than that. So if you have your Bibles, you may want to turn to uh, the uh, book of 2 Corinthians. We're going to start really in chapter 11 as we kind of march through that in a moment. But I want to kind of give you a forecast of what we're going to see as we're going through it. Because some of the language is a little interesting. Paul is going to eventually challenge the church at Corinth not to rely on their strengths. Not to celebrate their accomplishments, uh, but to begin to rely and celebrate and thank God for their weaknesses because that's the space where God's grace shows up most powerfully. It's the place where God's grace can be demonstrated. So he writes to this church at Corinth, and, and I want you to understand a little bit about Corinth. Corinth was like a destination city of that day. Um, it, it, was, it was like New York or L.A. or Chicago or even, you know, Charleston. People are dying to get here these days, it seems like. Our, our roads prove that. You know, it's a destination. People were flocking to Corinth because of the cultural experience. They, they, it, there was luxurious lifestyle there. They had very impressive architecture. There was a lot of exotic and pleasurable living. There were extravagant buildings. And some of you are aware of this, that there's, you know, still today known as the Corinthian style of architecture. That's usually built around long, large columns that uh, kind of speak to the prestige and power of that city. And they placed a lot of value on strength, on accomplishments, on, on resumes, on education. And so Paul writes his first letter into this kind of new struggling church that they were getting a lot of things wrong. If you've ever read 1 Corinthians 13, their, their worship was a mess when they gathered to worship. It was just messy. And so Paul writes to them. And now Paul's writing this second letter to them. And in between his first letter and this second letter, a group of people had come into the city who were... They followed Paul around basically, everywhere he went. And when he'd plant a church, um, or some of his disciples would plant a church, these guys would come in, these, these Judaizer kind of religious legalists would come in, and they would bring false teaching with them. And they came into Corinth and they began touting their strengths. They pull out their religious resumes and they pull out and talk about their great, incredible, supernatural experiences. And what was happening is, even though they were teaching, they weren't teaching Jesus fully, they had their own kind of gospel going on, people started following them because of their personalities. People started saying, man, that guy's got it going on. Look at what he's done. I'm going to follow this one. So Paul's writing now into this, trying to correct that and, and, and point out that this is not, not God's plan. And Paul knows that he could point to his accomplishments. He could do that. But Paul hates that. Because the message that Paul wants the church to get is, I want you to delight in your weaknesses. So this was a challenging letter for Paul. I don't know if you've ever had to write a challenging letter to somebody. But this was not an easy letter for Paul to write because he, he knows he's writing into this culture that celebrates accomplishments and, and strength. But he wants them to become people who celebrate in, in their weakness. Now the truth is, that's a challenge for us today. Because in so many ways, we're like that culture of Corinth. 
You know, we're like this culture. You know, people in our culture love to celebrate our abilities and our accomplishments. And we like being self-reliant. Those are the things that we strive for. We put up this kind of goal for our lives. Paul's going to flip that. Paul's going to ask us to look a little differently at our strengths and our weaknesses because he's going to show us in our weakness is where we really make room for the grace of God. Now here's how he's going to do this. Because he's writing to this church at Corinth, he knows these people. He knows this culture. In his first letter, um, back in chapter 9 of his first letter, Paul makes this statement. He said, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. So Paul's not unaccustomed to having to kind of step out of his comfort zone for the purpose of communicating the clarity of the gospel. And he wants them to see the beauty of, of letting God step into your weakness and be strong for you. But he knows that in order to do that, he's going to have to kind of step into their game. So Paul comes to them with his strength to begin with. He, he kind of steps in to this. And we see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. But I want you to notice as we read through this how difficult this is for Paul. He says this in verse 16. He says, don't think that I'm a fool to talk like this. Paul is saying, this feels so ridiculously out of character for me. I feel foolish kind of going at it this way. He says, such boasting, it's not from the Lord. He says, I'm acting like a fool. But since others boast about their human achievements, I will too. Now, remember, he's doing this because of those false teachers. That's the way they had started gathering a crowd. And so Paul says this, whatever anyone dares to boast about, I will. And so he, he says, I'm, I feel like a fool, you know, playing this game. But if they want to play the game of one-upmanship, I'm in. I'll get in there with the best of them. And so he, he does that. And then in verse 22 and 23, he says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? Me too. Are they servants of Christ? Right here. And then he kind of adds this really strange statement. He says, I know I sound like a madman. Because that, that, that's just really kind of out of step with where he was going. He said, now I, I just feel like a, a, a madman because this was so countercultural to the nature of Paul. He never wanted to elevate himself. He always wanted to only elevate Jesus. But remember, he's playing, he's playing their game. But he says, I know I sound like a madman going off here. He says, but... I have served him far more. Speaking of Jesus, I've served him far more. I've worked harder. I've been put in prison more often. I've been whipped times without number. I have faced death again and again. If they want to compare resumes, let's go. Paul said. He said, I can, I can play this game. But he's making this case because that's their value system. He's wanting them to see who he is. He said, yeah, I know about all those guys, but my list is more impressive. I, I have more zeal. And then if you read the, the following 10 verses, the remainder of chapter 11, he goes on and on and on listing these incredible ways that he has suffered and sacrificed for the Lord. Just some incredible things that he's done. Then chapter 12 starts this way. Paul says, this boasting will do no good, but I must go on. Then he says, I will reluctantly tell about visions and revelations from the Lord. Verse 2, he says, I was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know. Only God knows. Yes, only God knows whether I was in my body or outside my body. But I do know that 
I was caught up to paradise. And I heard things so astounding. Things that cannot be expressed in words. Such things no human is allowed to tell. That experience is worth boasting about. But I'm not going to do it. What Paul says. Paul says I'm not going to Paul, Paul tells the, in this letter, he says, 14 years ago, I was caught up, not to the first heaven, not to the second heaven, but to the third heaven. Can you imagine? And I'm reading and I'm thinking, dude, I don't know what the third heaven is. I've heard people teach on it, you know, and I think, you don't know what you're talking about. You're making that stuff up. You know, we don't know exactly all that he means about the third heaven, but we know it was, it was spectacular. It was just this incredible. And he says, I've seen incredible things. Now, here's the deal. He had never told anybody that. Paul had not mentioned this to the church at Corinth. This happened 14 years ago. And the only thing he tells us about that experience, that unbelievable uh, spiritual high that he experienced, the only thing he tells us about it is, I'm not going to tell you about it. He says, I've had it. But I'm not going to boast about it. Now, I'm just going to be really transparent for a minute. If I end up in the third heaven, you're going to hear about it next week. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, it's going to be my sermon title. How I went to the third heaven. Subtitled, Why God Invited Me and Not You. You know, I, <laughs> I'm going to boast about it. You know? Pastor Terry's going to have to start announcing me. And back from the third heaven, Joe Still. You know. That's just Paul. 14 years. Not mentioned this. He's walked around living with the beauty and the knowledge of, of the power of God. Flowing through him. And the only reason he even brings it up now. It's just to, 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 to play their game so they, they'll, they'll listen to him. You know how Paul most often introduced himself? If you look at how he starts Romans chapter 1 or how he starts the book to Titus, both times he says, Hi, I'm Paul. I'm a slave of Jesus. Hi, I'm Paul. I'm, I'm just, I'm God's slave. See, here's the, here's the interesting thing about, about a slave. A slave is not known for their resume. A slave is not known for their family pedigree tree. You know what the only thing a slave is known for? Who their master is. That's the only thing they're known for is, is who their master happens to be. And Paul just says, I'm, I'm a servant of Jesus, man. That's, that's all you need to know about me. Nothing else matters. But see... These Corinthians, they needed this impressive spreadsheet. So Paul tells them, look, I, I got schooled in the best school by the greatest professor of theology, Gamaliel. I was at the top of my game. He's got all the right credentials. But Paul knows for himself that create, could create pride. He could, pride could settle in. He could start putting all of his confidence in those things. So in verse 6, Paul says, If I wanted to boast, I would be no fool in doing so because I would be telling the truth. But I don't want to do it. I don't want to do this because I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they can see in my life or hear in my message. 
Paul gets really personal here. He gets really vulnerable here going in to that great verse 7. He says, even though I received such wonderful revelations from God, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. And then he says, three times I begged, God, take it away. Lord, Lord, take this away. Now, there are tons and tons of speculations about what this thorn was. A lot of different ideas on it. Um, all we know really is that it was significant. So significant in his life that he begged God to take it away. I'm guessing he asked more often, but this was a, these were the three times he remembers begging on his knees, weeping, God, take it away. Is there something in your life that you're asking God to take away? Is there something that you've just been carrying around, some, some weakness, some thorn, and you're just, you're begging God, I want to change in this area. You're begging God to heal you, or you're begging God to be, to be released from this captivity. And it hasn't happened yet. It just, it hasn't happened yet. Paul, interestingly, calls it a messenger from Satan. He recognizes that this thorn is from Satan, but then he acknowledges God could take it away. God has the power to do that. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that's helpful to me. That, that's helpful to me to know that there are things in my life, painful things that have come into my life that I don't want there, and they're not from my father. But he's allowing them there for a reason. They came from Satan. God could remove it. Why doesn't he? Well, he answers Paul when Paul asked that question. In verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 12, God says, my grace is all you need. My grace is all you need. My power works perfectly in your weakness. My grace is all you need. And so Paul, after hearing that from God, concludes this way. He says, so now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. He says, I will take pleasure in my weakness. I'm not going to ask God to take this away from me anymore. Paul has entered into his weakness. He's embraced his weakness. He's, he's wearing it well now. So that he faces hardships and he faces persecutions and he faces trouble and suffering. Knowing that in his weakness, God's strength is flowing through him. He said, I used to plead for God to take it away. Not anymore. I'm going to boast about my weakness. I'm going to celebrate my weakness. Because that's where God's power has shown off in my life. That's where it's shown up and shown off. That's where it's worked best to transform me inwardly and outwardly. So I'm going to celebrate it. If you haven't memorized 2 Corinthians 9, I want to encourage you to do that. God's grace is all you need. Some of you probably have memorized this. God's grace is sufficient. I love the translation. It's, the, it's called the Passion Translation. It's kind of weird in some places, but I love the way it translates this verse. It says, my grace is always more than enough for you. My grace is always more than enough for you. And so Paul says... I'm taking pleasure, I'm celebrating, I'm boasting in those places where I'm weak. And that's the big idea for today. The big idea is simply this, that God's grace is more than enough to deal with all of my thorns. Whatever my thorn is, whatever it happens to be, God's grace is more than enough to deal with it. 
And I want us to look at, in the time we have left, three thorns that I think are common to the human experience. Three thorns that all of us, if we haven't faced one of them yet, we're going to. The first one is this. God's grace can reign over the thorns of affliction. The thorns of affliction. The word here that's used in verse 7 as, as thorn is not like, you know, a little sand spur that you pick up at the beach in your foot. It's not like, you know, a, a rosebush thorn. It, this word is often translated stake. It is something big. It's significant. It's like, like more like a spear. It's just a really big deal. And Paul, you know, he, he's been saying... It's kept me from doing what I, I, I think God wanted me to do. It's, it's, it's been a problem for me. He begged God to take it away, but now he's saying don't. God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live in this. God, it's better for me because in my weakness, your strength is, is demonstrated. God, keep demonstrating your thing, your strength. Some people think that, you know, this was a, maybe a, a sin struggle. Some, maybe a temptation. But the, the word here, flesh, that's used in this particular passage is really about the human body. It, it's about this idea of the physical nature. And so, many believe this was a physical affliction. And there were all, kind, there were all kinds of theories on what Paul's physical affliction was that he's speaking of. What this thorn was. Some people say it was just he was so hideous and unattractive from all the beatings and the stonings that he had taken. That he had become kind of malformed and that it was a, a hindrance uh, to the gospel being shared. That people didn't want to want to look at him. And, and back in 2 Corinthians 10, he kind of references that. Paul kind of says, you know, my looks are a distraction. It, it, it's a problem. Other people believe that Paul struggled with epilepsy. Uh, they based that on uh, a passage in Galatians chapter 4 uh, where Paul talks about this condition that I had. You did not despise or loathe. The word loathe there is also translated spit. And what basically what Paul said is you didn't spit on me. Now in ancient cultures when people had epilepsy and they had a seizure people thought they were demonically possessed. They would spit on them. And so basically Paul says in Galatians 4, thank you for not spitting on me. You know, so some people say he had epilepsy. Some people think that, you know, he struggled with eye problems. Because later in Galatians, in, in chapter 6, verse 11, he talks about, you, you probably noticed, I normally, somebody else writes my letters, but I wrote this one because you can see my big letters. So some people think he had, had an eye problem. We don't know. We don't know what the problem was. Some people think it was, you know, digestive issues. You know, maybe he struggled with IBS or something. We don't know. We just know that Paul had this thing that he felt like was hindering him. Now, why do you think that Paul didn't name it? Why do you think Paul didn't name his thorn? Well, I think one reason is the same reason he wouldn't tell us about the third heaven. Because he didn't want to be the center of attention. Why he waited 14 years to even mention something like that. He didn't want the focus to be on him. I think the second reason is because the Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to write also inspired Paul to leave this blank. I believe that. So that I could put mine in there. I could fill the blank in with my weakness. I could, I could think about my thorn and know that God's grace is even sufficient for my stuff. For my weaknesses. For, for my thorns. So whatever you're struggling with today, you can fill in that blank. Your, your thorns, God's grace will always be bigger. It can always have dominion over any, any struggle you have, even physical. 
You know, we've got folks in our church that are battling things like cancer right now. And they feel beaten and battered in their bodies by this. God's grace is sufficient for that. It will help you overcome that. Secondly, God's grace can reign over the thorns of my inadequacies. Over the thorns of my inadequacies. Usually in our culture when we hear the word weakness, we attribute it to some kind of inability or incapacity or something that we're not capable of pulling off. You know, that whatever it takes to get the job done, that, you know, we can't do it. God's grace will always be more than enough to overcome our inadequacies. Have you ever been on a job interview and have somebody ask you, tell me about, not your strengths, but tell me about your weakness. You know, what we like to do, because we don't like our weaknesses, we like to hide our weaknesses. So what we do in a situation like that is we take a strength and we try to throw mud on it. You know, we, we say something like, yes, I, my wife says I'm a, I'm a workaholic. You know, she says it leads to imbalance in my life, but I promise if you hire me, I'll try to, I'll try to work on that a little bit. You know, we try to take, you know, th this kind of thing that we think is a strength and we just kind of throw mud on it a little bit. So, uh, because we don't like to admit our weaknesses. We don't like to step into those. So, we, we, we try to disguise. We try to hide them. We try to whitewash our weaknesses. We love to trumpet our strengths. But we want to hide our weaknesses. Some of you know about a book that came out years ago in the business community. It's called Strength Finders. This is Strength Finders 2.0, by the way. Um, and when, and the, the, the premise of the book was this. Basically, uh, the, there's an online thing that you can go on and fill out. When you buy the book, they give you a, a coupon to do that. You go on and fill out. It'll tell you about your five top strengths. It'll help name them for you. And then the, the rest of the idea is we want to help you when you know your, and identify your five top strengths to know how your top strengths work with other people's top strengths in the work environment so that you guys can work together well. And it, it warns you about if you've got this strength and you can come in contact with somebody with this strength, you're probably going to butt heads and that kind of stuff. So it's, it's a pretty good thing. But here's what I don't think. I don't think Paul would recommend that book. I think the book Paul would recommend is Weakness Finders. You know? Let me help you identify your weakness and let's talk about that some. Let's celebrate that in the presence of one another. Let's think about that together. Because Paul knows that's where God's power is going to be put on great display. Where somebody's going to dynamically experience it. So let's speak about our weaknesses. Because that's where we find God's grace. Over in Acts chapter 4. There is this. There's this accounting in the history of the church. And in Acts 4, Peter and John have been proclaiming the gospel in the streets. Thousands of people are coming to Jesus. The church is growing. And the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, get ticked. So they drag John and Peter in and say, you know, dudes, what's going on? What are you doing? What's the big idea kind of thing? And something interesting, I want to read this to you. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they tried to push them down. They tried to shut them up. They wouldn't. And it says this, they perceived they were uneducated common men. You know, they had this conversation when they said, dude, we ain't got a clue what's going on with these guys. They are not sharp at all. You know, they're just ordinary, you know. But then it says, so they're astonished. 
They're astonished at how these ordinary men are turning this city upside down. And then it says this. They recognized they had been with Jesus. They saw God's grace coming out. They may not have been able to identify what it was, but it was the grace of God flowing because these men had been with Jesus. They were dragged into this. They, they saw the boldness. They couldn't figure it out. They were just ordinary men, but they realized they'd been with Jesus. That was their identifying mark. And see, what's so interesting and what astonished them was their ordinariness. They were shocked at the ordinary. They expected when they hauled these guys in that these guys were going to be, you know, the, the intellectual elite of the day. The most theologically trained people in the room. Not so. You know, they were, they were evangelizing the town. The kingdom of God was coming. And every one of those Sanhedrin had, some, had a fantasy of them being the one doing that. So they were jealous. You know, and they, what they were freaked out by was how ordinary these people were. It made the gospel, the beauty of God even more powerful. Because it's Father's Day, I can't let you leave here, dads, without picking on us for just a minute. Okay? Because this is an area that our kids desperately need to see the reality of who we are. Your kids, my kids... They need to not only hear the story of when you were a hero, but when you were a zero. They, they need to know when you blew it. They, they need to know that you made the team, but you sat the bench. They, they need to know the truth about you. They need to know something about your struggle. Yes, it needs to be age appropriate, yes. But they need to know that you didn't always win. They need to know that you have inadequacies. And there are places that you don't have the strongest of capacities. And they need to know of your struggle. They know, need to know you're not always right. You know the best way to help your kids know that you're not always right? Apologize to them when you're wrong. Tell them that you're sorry when you screw up relationally with them. I, I don't remember a time in my relationship with my children where the power of God got released and drew our hearts together, drew my, my kids deeper into relationship with me when I would look them in the eye and said, you don't own that, I own that, I am so sorry I just lost it with you. That is not about you. I was wrong. It releases the power of God in their lives. Grace begins to flow both ways. And it draws the human heart. And dad, your kids need to see that you mess up sometimes. It makes a huge difference. They need to hear those stories. Friends, God's grace can overcome and reign over your afflictions. It can overcome and reign over your inadequacies. I want to read you real quickly a little, an excerpt uh, from a book. This is from the book, Tramp for the Lord by Corey Ten Boom. And she tells uh, several stories, but one of the stories she tells is a story of meeting um, in communist Russia during the Cold War period. It, she says this, there was an old woman lying on a small sofa propped up by pillows. Her body was bent and twisted almost beyond recognition by the dread disease of multiple sclerosis. Her aged husband spent all this time caring for her since she was unable to move off the sofa. The only part of her body that she could control was her right hand. And with the index finger of that right hand, she had for many years glorified God by typing on a vintage typewriter. And what she would tr do is translate Christian books into Russian. She would use that one finger, peck, 
peck, peck, peck, peck, peck, peck, all day long and, and late into the night. She would translate portions of the Bible, other books by Christian writers like Billy Graham. And her husband said not only does she translate the books, but while she's typing, she's praying for the authors. Praying that God's kingdom would come, that the, when it's the word of God, that it would get spread. And Corey Ten Boom writes about herself. She said, I looked at her wasted form on the sofa, her head pulled down, her feet curled under her body, and she thought, oh Lord, why don't you heal her? She said her husband sensed her anguish and gave an answer. God has a purpose in her sickness. Every other Christian in the city is watched by the secret police. But because she has been so sick for so long, no one ever checks in on her. They leave us alone. She is the only person in this whole city who can quietly type the gospel of Jesus undetected by the police. Now, I don't know about you, but if I walked into a room and saw someone like that, my first, my first reaction would be to think, God, take that away. God, 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 heal her. God, this is, this is so painful. God, do something. But it was in that space of her life that God was doing something. That was blessing Corey that day. That was blessing that city that she lived in. And hopefully blessed you today. When you hear the story, I know it does me. See, this is how God's grace operates in our weaknesses. I've been learning about that personally in a unique, specific way. See, I, I've come to understand and, and experience there's a direct proportion to the extent that I am able to step into my weaknesses to experiencing the fullness of God's grace. And I'm only going to receive the extra amount of God's grace has for me as I learn to acknowledge and delight in my weaknesses. See, it, it doesn't work to deny our weaknesses. We have to, to step into them. And God has, in the last four years especially, God has been teaching me a great deal about this. Now, some of you may or may not know this. I think most of you do. That four years ago, this summer, I stepped into the role as lead pastor of River Bluff Church. It was not anything I aspired to. I wasn't looking for it. Um, I had always thought that uh, when Kurt retired, I would go somewhere else and to a church that needed to kind of do a turnaround because I I had seen that done and thought, well, maybe I could do it. For some of you that don't know, I spent almost my entire adult life being a second chair leader under Kurt Bradford, who, by the way, just FYI, so that you can maybe encourage him, today is 30 years that he's been employed by River Bluff. 30 years ago today, he preached his first message as the pastor of River Bluff Church. And um, so reach out and, and just, you know, give him a shout out, uh, tell him congratulations. And oh, make sure you thank Joyce. Uh, those of you that know Kurt know why. Um, but he, he, this has been my mentor for, you know, for over 30 years. And, you know, um, one of the things that I had kind of grown up here, you know, grew up hearing, especially, you know, when you go to leadership things is one of the strategies of uh, being seen as a great leader is never follow a great leader in an organization. You know, follow somebody who was a blundering idiot, you know, and then you look good, you know. Um, well, that wasn't my case. I'm following somebody who's a great leader. And as I was praying through this, there was this great tension that built in my soul, you know, over this. And if it wasn't for having heard a clear call, not from the elders who did come to me and say, we think 
We think God is moving this way. Not from the day the church voted overwhelmingly to say yes, we think that. It came on October the 2nd as I was soaping through Joshua 1. And I heard God say, I'm calling you to do this. And I didn't really want to do this. But it was there that there's movement for this kind of dynamic experience for me to experience God's grace. See, Kurt and I are very different. Kurt is this unbelievable extrovert. I'm a deep introvert, you know? Kurt, Kurt leads from the front of the line, you know? His, his motto was, find a parade, get in front of it. Mine is, get in the middle of the mess and try to get a parade going. I, I, I lead kind of from the middle of the pack. He's a dynamic, off-the-cuff kind of speaker. I'm, I like to think about it, write it down, communicate from that. We're, we're just such different people. And so there was this, and has been this tension in my life about that. And I always perceived those as weaknesses because I felt inadequate for the task. But Father, my Father God has been teaching me that when I step into that, when I acknowledge that, his grace will be sufficient. Yes, I still live with thoughts. You know, I, I always, you know, wonder what happens when the staff really sees how goofy I am. You know, how messed up I am. Are they still going to follow? You know what? Here's what I'm finding out. God's grace can overcome the thorn of my insecurities. God's grace has become sufficient to overcome, especially in this last year. God's grace is sufficient to overcome any inadequacy, any inability, and any security that I have. You know, in those moments when the enemy comes and attacks my identity, God whispers in my ear, my grace is more than enough for you, Joe. It is abundantly more. When I begin to feel vulnerable and insecure, God screams, my grace is enough. It's sufficient for you, Joe. Now, here's the deal. Every human being experiences insecurity. I don't care what yours is. I don't care if you're leading from the front or from the rear. Doesn't matter what you're doing. Every human being experiences some level of insecurity and God's grace is sufficient for that. It may be a relational insecurity. Maybe, maybe you're having meltdown in a relationship. I don't know. One of the things Paul did to kind of alert the church at Corinth of where he was going, when he started the letter, if you go back to the first chapter, in the very first chapter that we see at the beginning of his letter, his introduction, Paul talks about how there were moments when he felt overwhelmed by what was going on. They, about all the struggle that ministry came with, that he had to endure beyond his ability, those kinds of things. And you get to verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. You ever felt like that? You ever felt like you'd been given assignment and it was a death sentence? You know, you just felt like there is no way I'm going to be able to, you know, I, I'm, I'm never going to get through this. Well, that's what, that's what Paul says here. But look what he says. He goes on, he says, but that was make, to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who does what? Who raises dead things, baby. He raises dead things. If you want to experience the grace of God, step into your security, you need to know the God that raises dead things so that when you feel like you've received a death sentence, maybe an assignment that's too big for you, and you're feeling insecure, guess what? God's grace can have dominion over you if you go to the God that raises dead things. It can happen. But 
as Paul pointed out, you got to trust God. You got to start there. And so, here's, here's a prayer that I'm praying. I'm probably going to make you mad knowing that I'm your pastor and I'm praying this prayer for you. But I'm praying that you get messed up with this. I, I am just praying that you, God puts you in a place where you have nothing else you can do but trust Him. So that you can experience the fullness, the full measure of His grace. So you can rest in His grace. So that you will know you can trust Him through everything. You will know that His grace is more than enough for any thorn in your life. You will know that it's more powerful than your sin and your shame. You will know that it's powerful enough to bring you to forgiveness of the person who's hurt you the most. And it can have power to bring about a strength in the middle of all your weaknesses. His grace is more than enough. Let's pray. Father, we come right now in this moment. We come giving you thanks for Jesus. Lord, I, I don't know. I don't know how any other person in this room would fill in that blank. That blank where I need your grace to be more than enough for this, more than enough for that. Maybe you're here today and you need grace sufficient for a marriage that's in trouble. Maybe you're here today and you need grace that's sufficient for the weakness in the relationship between you and your child. Maybe you're here today and you need strength that can only come from God to turn something around at work. I don't know what you need, but God's grace is more than enough. It's more than enough. Whatever your weakness, whatever your thorn, maybe it's a battle with a recurring sin. Maybe it's temptation. God's grace is more than enough for you today. Maybe you're one of those I talked about earlier whose body right now is, is just beating you up. God's grace is more than enough for you today. God has a plan for your life, even in your weak state. His grace is more than enough. Maybe you're here for the first time today hearing the gospel of grace. The gospel that you can't be good enough, you can't work hard enough. That there's nothing you can do but receive the grace of God by faith. And you want it. You long to experience God's strength flowing through your life at your greatest point of weakness. You've tried the religion path. You've tried trusting in your own strength and it's left you a miserable failure and you're crying out to God, dear God. God's word says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. That's all you got to do is come to him trusting that he is enough. He's enough to overcome your sin that separates you from God. He's enough to overcome the shame the worthlessness that you feel because of your sin. He can overcome that. And you just have to trust in him. Just call on Jesus' name. Father, we come now bringing back to you through 
our tithes and offerings, gifts, that which belongs to you and gifts because God, we want the message of grace starting in Charleston to go to the ends of the earth. We want to see your kingdom come and your will done, God, in our lifetime. We want to see it. So we come sacrificing and being generous with our earthly possessions, money, God. We come bringing our hearts and our lives to you because, God, we want your grace to flow. God, we come in this moment worshiping you, believing that your grace is enough. And as we, as we celebrate it, we come convinced again today that in our own strength, we're not strong enough. We need you. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9.30 or 11 o'clock services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.